As a result, the 19th century was the age of the greatest expansion of Christianity since the days of the early church. Moreover, the colonialism of Britain introduced an internationalism of ideas and men. It was a tremendous accomplishment. One of the most remarkable things, if not perhaps the most remarkable thing in all of human history. However, there were counterforces against this in Britain before the century was over. The old opposition never died out. One of the most effective persons in undercutting all this work that the middle classes were doing and that Prince Albert had been able to further was Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens was a snob. He was also a dandy. I don't know how to describe a dandy. Bo Brummel was perhaps uh, about a century earlier the prince of dandies. Not a century earlier, at the beginning of the century. We had a brief flash of the dandy during World War II in the zoot suitors on the Negro and uh, some white levels. And that legitimately was uh, a last flash of the dandy mentality. Dickens was a dandy. Oscar Wilde, by the way, was another. Dickens hated the middle class and his perspective was that of the leisure class the people who are above work. And as a result, through his novels, he popularized the idea of the oppressive middle classes. In Oliver Twist and in many of his other works, the businessman usually comes out as the monster. And the Lord is very kindly people and the lower classes as the poor abused people who are kicked in the teeth, as it were, by the middle classes. On top of that, the Fabian Society was organized towards the end of the century, systematically propagating socialism. But earlier, there had been even a more deadly enemy. Charles Darwin, 1859, The Origin of Species. The book, as I point out in my Mythology of Science, sold out the first edition on the day of publication. People were waiting for the book. Here was armor against Christianity, a weapon to use against these hated evangelicals and middle-class people with all their pious camps. So they bought it up the first day. It was an enormously popular book. The myth is propagated about how poor Darwin suffered and was persecuted. This is anything but the truth. It was an immensely popular work. 
except for one bishop. There was no real opposition to the idea of evolution until about the 1890s when various people organized to combat the rising tide of unbelief that was sweeping the churches. But there were other factors that began to contribute to the decline that was setting in. The secularization of education. Education was becoming a state affair and humanism was in command. Moreover, the merchants and businessmen, who were not all Christians by any means at any time, were beginning now to desert the faith. They began to imitate the leisure classes. They sought prestige. The idea was to marry their daughter off to someone in the leisure class and using as a bait a great deal of money will give uh, so many hundred thousand pounds uh, if uh, Lord so-and-so's son will marry our daughter. And then he'll have money enough so that he doesn't have a problem anymore financially and he won't be a deadbeat with his tailor and so on. And we will be related to the Lords. And of course, about the same time, the second half of the last century, especially in the latter part, the 80s, you saw the same movement here in this country as the wealthy American families began to seek alliances with the nobility of Europe. Let us marry our daughters off to the leisure classes of Europe. And many, a noble family of Europe, of Italy, of Spain, of France, Germany, Austria, England, and elsewhere, was recharged financially with an American marriage. It is really incredible how many such marriages were contracted. Thus, the middle classes began to imitate the ways and the values of the upper classes. It became more important to be a gourmet and a connoisseur than to be godly and productive. Good taste was no longer associated with what is in balance, but what is precious and extreme, far out. As a result, when the 20th century dawned, there was a new kind of man on the scene, a man who increasingly was aping the leisure class. The 20th century was seen as the age of coming world peace, brotherhood, and prosperity. They were sure that man was going to solve all his problems in this century and it was going to be a time of unequaled bliss and peace. But the collapse of the middle classes and their desertion of Christianity turned the tide in the other direction. Sometime after World War I, 
A very interesting comic strip was produced by a man named Briggs to satirize this change. We still have it with us, but the point has been forgotten. It's Maggie and Jigs. What was it about in origin? It was about an Irish couple who'd come to this country and had been on the lower level, had worked hard, and she had worked as a washerwoman, she had worked in factories, she had worked here, there, and everywhere at every kind of job. And he had gone into some kind of production work, and little by little, succeeded and then gradually become a very wealthy and a powerful man. And what happened? From being production-oriented, they became consumption-oriented. And Maggie decided she wanted to forget everything about their past, so Jake's could no longer go anywhere near Dinty Moore and his uh, hang out and see his old friends uh, who were common people and who had not risen as they had, she wanted to be associated with the upper classes and lords and ladies to be invited to her home and, of course, to go to the opera where she dragged her poor husband, Jiggs, who hated it. She was a social client. And the whole point of the comic strip was Jiggs, a man who had forged his way to the top as a very productive, capable, competent man, was now a joke. Why? Because his whole perspective was being shifted by his wife's social ambition and from being a producer he was being made a fool who was financing his wife's ambitions to be a connoisseur, a gourmet, a society hanger-on. What did the comic strip mean as it originally came out? That the entrepreneur, the man who was the backbone of the Western world, was now becoming a joke. The world of the non-working elite was returning with everyone imitating them. And what was happening? Now, the elite have always despised the mob. There was a time when cast-offs clothing was given to servants. Now, the standard became to give them their cast-off fads, that is, to create new styles, new patterns, of behavior, and to drop them the minute they became popular with ordinary people, and thereby to prove their superiority because they were setting the temper which everybody down to the lowest level would follow. So you would adopt a particular type of dress or conduct, and the minute it caught on, you moved on to something else and always proved you were the elite that you were still giving cast-off things, as it were, to the mob. The goal was to be demonstrably useless. 
A book was written at the beginning of the century about this by a socialist who was a very discerning man, Veblen's theory of the leisure class. And he pointed out how this had been a pattern throughout history. How, for example, in Mandarin China, the standard of being a gentleman and a lady, well, to be a lady, you had to have your feet bound so that you couldn't really walk very much. You were helpless. And you had long fingernails that proved you could not work. So long that you couldn't possibly do any work. And you thereby demonstrated that you were useless. And of course, this is the essence of the whole idea of the leisure class. To prove that you are useless. That you create things and cast them off for the mob. That you treat everything as a joke and flout standards. You express your contempt for the practical, for the moral world that your pleasure is to be seen in the best company, in the best restaurants, in the best homes, on the best tours, the grand tour began in the 18th century, as one of the idle rich to make an impression, appearance instead of reality. But when men live in terms of appearance, Reality does not go away. It has a habit of returning with a vengeance. Next week, as we conclude our studies, we will see something of the return of reality to the sleepwalkers. One of the great books written in Germany, after World War I, was titled The Sleepwalkers. It was a prophetic book, a very long, unpleasant book. But his basic thesis was, and as a German who had seen defeat, he was one of the few who woke up to what the world was becoming. And his basic thesis is, men are sleepwalkers. We're going around seeking their own advantage, their own pleasure, trying to get ahead and to make a bigger impression on other people, to uh, experience the best pleasures, to have the best men or women to make love with, but like sleepwalkers, unaware of the reality that is bearing down on them. It was a fitting subject and a very timely thesis. We are in the age of the sleepwalkers who have forgotten reality for appearance. And we will next week analyze precisely what the situation is and its meaning for us. Let us bow our heads in prayer. 
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast called us out of the dream of sin, of the nightmare, the sleepwalk of sin, into the reality of Jesus Christ. And we pray that Thou wouldst use us to wake up men, women, and children to the reality of Christ, to the reality of a world lost in sin, to the reality of thy purposes for us and thy so great promises in Jesus Christ, that we may be able in the days ahead to recall men, women, and nations to the saving power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, before... I show you these two pictures. I'd like to comment briefly. Next week is our last session, and a few of you have expressed a desire for some other sessions, perhaps a little later. And we can discuss next week what you're interested in. So if you are interested in them, next week we'll have an opportunity to go into that and what you are interested in. But I'd like to say this now. I am working on a very small paperback on uh, the effect of Neoplatonism on Christianity. And this gets to the heart of many of these things that we've been discussing. What are the ideas that came in? What have they done to the faith? Now, in two, possibly three weeks, I can sum up the essence of that if you're interested in continuing these sessions for two or three weeks. How many of you would be interested in that? Well, very good. We'll continue with Neoplatonism and Christianity after we finish our uh, world history next week. So two weeks from now, we will go into that. Now, this is a picture of Gin Alley, and this is no exaggeration. In fact, it is perhaps uh, not realistically in, uh, realistic enough because you don't get the smell and the sound of it in a picture. And that basement bar will say, uh, uh, drunk for one pence, uh, dead drunk for two pence, and drunk. <laughs> Now, as I indicated, because England was, in a sense, the center of the world stage for two or three hundred years, in a sense, it became the center for every kind of force good and evil. And I just barely touched on the tremendous forces of good that came out of that era. Oh, very good question. In a much earlier era, these lords were feudal lords who really ruled each particular era, area as a kingdom. They had a working relationship 
between themselves and the people. They were the protector and they were the lord of a particular area. They ruled it, say a county or something. And uh, as time passed, of course, they no longer had that function. The crown was providing the law and order for the commonwealth. And as a result, uh, their role was basically parasitic. And so they worked to seize power and maintain it after the glorious revolution of 1688 and to prevent uh, the middle classes whom they regarded as a threat from running the country. The real issue, of course, in the uh, Puritan regime under Cromwell was that uh, this is where the Lord's broke with him. Some of the lords were very perturbed and with reason at what Charles I was doing. But after a certain point, they wanted no more of Cromwell because they were afraid that uh, the wrong people were going to run things. How many of you saw the picture uh, Cromwell? Just a few of you. That's too bad. It was a very powerful and a moving picture. But in it, it very clearly shows how Lord Essex was very much against the king up to a point. But then changed sides the minute it became apparent what the direction of the whole thing was. He and others who were associated with him could not bear the thought of a triumph for these Puritan merchants, and it was to a great extent the triumph of uh, the merchant classes and the middle-class people of England. Yes? In the Henry VIII, that's Thomas. That's a different Cromwell. Yes, uh, several generations before. Now, at that point, uh, they're following. Incidentally, that series, while it's possible to differ at points, is the most accurate I've ever seen in movie or television on anything. However, Thomas Cromwell, according to one of the finest English historians who's just written a book on Henry VIII, is one of the most maligned men of history. And he makes a good case for the fact that he was the most dedicated servant England had at the time. A man of tremendous insight and practical wisdom. A man who uh, did much... Uh, of permanent worth for England. As a matter of fact, after his execution, Henry VIII realized that uh, some of the men around him had deliberately lied to him and misrepresented things. And so he accused them once of being the liars who had destroyed Cromwell, who had been a good and faithful servant to him. Yes. The book of Jasher, uh, there is no such existing book, although there are 
people who claim they have it. These are all apocryphal, fraudulent. The book of Joshua and other such books that are referred to in the Bible were not books of the Bible. They were simply chronicles of military affairs, you see. So uh, they're referred to at times, but they had no status as scripture. They were military chronicles. Yes. Could there be some sort of parallel or, or significance to this board uh, situation and the, and the modern situation in industry and big organizations where the, the separation between the professional class and the, and the working class and, and the professional class gets more and more into a, another world and a, and a useless world and a world that sort of stifles communication and you have one class that actually is doing a job and intelligently involved with the problems of a job, and another class that is almost like a leisure class in that they, they make many times the amount of money and tend to sort of delight in, in the uselessness of, of their activity. Well, the thing that divides men is not the class structure of society, but rather a lack of a unifying faith. Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, was not Christian in his perspective. But he does bring out some very interesting things, how in bygone years the Lord and the lowliest man on his estates were very close together. They had a great deal in common. First, they both shared the same faith. Second, they did many things together. It was a working relationship. You're always going to have people who are, so to speak, lords and people who are lackeys. You're never going to escape that situation in the world. There are some people who are naturally superior and are going to go to the top. But without faith, they fall apart and they become in conflict. With faith, they become a working, cooperating agency. Now, it's very interesting that uh, I've referred to the fact that Japan is still semi-feudal. America is too. But in Japan, the feudal relationship is a little closer in some respects. In other respects here. In the personal area, it's a little closer. The last U.S. News and World Report had a very interesting account of uh, Japanese labor. And it pointed out they're not underpaid the way some people think. All the fringe benefits they have, and so on. So that they are really very well paid. Why? Because among other things, the uh, executives feel a personal concern for them and take care of them. Now, Peter Drucker has written at great length on this in Men, Ideas, and Politics. And he's pointed out how in Japan, when anyone goes to work for a company, he can figure that if he's there after the probation period, he's there for life. He will be expected continually to improve himself. He gets all kinds of security provisions, 
When he is 55, he is retired, but he will probably be retained at better pay. Only now he can be dropped at any time. So he's very much on his toes after 55, and instead of becoming stagnant, he's a much better employee because now he can be dropped with two years severance pay at any time. On top of that, any young in executive who goes to work for a company is assigned a godfather. This godfather, as it were, has to meet with him regularly. Now, who is this godfather? Well, he is somebody who has uh, become an outstanding executive. He's in his 40s. <laughs> However, he is not going to be a member of the board of directors on one of the top echelons. So he knows when he's reached that point and he's given people who are going to be his boys, as it were, his sons in the organization, that uh, he, he's not going to be the top uh, drawer uh, executive in the company. What he will be given after 55 is an executive position in a subsidiary, a department that he's familiar with, so that a smaller company here, he'll run. But he'll meet with these young executives who've just been taken out of college into the company or who have uh, come up through the ranks regularly. And he'll discuss their problems with him. They'll come to him with their problems and their complaints, and he'll work them out. And uh, then he'll go to them with things that he's heard that they need to work out. And after a while, he'll make a recommendation. And since he's not going to be competing with these boys, he's going to be in a subsidiary company at 55 as the top man there. He'll say, well, uh, Watanabe here is a, a good man for the elite uh, leadership in our company, or uh, I don't think he is, and so on. And Drucker said that uh, one of his pupils, when he flew to Japan a few years ago, came to him and he said, I'm new here, and uh, they think very highly of me, but they don't have any uh, a foster father or godfather in the organization who's known me long enough to be able to recommend me. And there is a position coming up in South America that I very much want. So will you uh, put in a good word for me in terms of your evaluation of me from seeing me at work in the States? And Drucker said, would they accept it? And he said, oh, they would welcome it. So he said he was conferring with the president of the corporation, and uh, he uh, said, would you mind if I say something about so-and-so, my former pupil? And the president's face lit up, and he said, oh, I was hoping you'd be ready to say something. Tell us just what you think of him candidly. And he said, on his word, the fellow got the job. And he said, uh, this kind of thing makes everyone feel there's a personal relationship, you see. Now, this is, I've gone around the barn quite a bit, but to give you an idea of what once existed between lords and commoners. And there was a working relationship then. When that ended, that was never ideal because there were many ugly periods in history then. But this was the kind of thing. There was this closeness. 
Now, there wasn't the corporate structure so that you were working your way up, but there was closeness. Today, there is no longer that closeness. Whether it's in a small company of 50 people or a big corporation of thousands, they're aliens to one another. In fact, if there are five people working in some enterprises, they can be strangers in a way that they are not in Japan and in a way that they were not in earlier centuries throughout the Western world. And it's this depersonalization that has created many tensions and resentments against uh, upper-class people, against middle-class people, against workers, because they're at war with one another. This is why in the South, where there was this kind of personal relationship between black and white, there was possible a peaceful relationship that was not possible the minute the uh, Negro went north. The relationship was impersonal. Now, well, our, yes, one more question. What? Well, of course, this is a, is a worldwide problem today. This is a worldwide problem, and of course, it isn't that there aren't good men. It's when you don't have the right kind of faith in a people, you cannot have them choose the right kind of leaders. This is the problem. Well, I think that's about all, except that there is an announcement. The Chalcedon Prayer Meeting will be meeting on January the 22nd at the home of Ken and Helen Thurston at 7.30 p.m., and it will include a discussion on the five points of Calvinism. The address is 4837 Al-Minar in La Cañada, and contact <coughs> Ken... Uh, Thurston for direction.